Speaking Freely with the ACLU of Pennsylvania. I'm Andy Hoover, your host and director of communications at the ACLU of PA. June at the Pennsylvania General Assembly is the busy season or the silly season, depending upon your perspective. State lawmakers are finalizing the state budget and spending most of the month in session. So the time seemed right to bring back Liz Randall, ACLU PA's legislative director. Liz and I had an unscripted conversation about the civil liberties issues that are being debated at the Capitol, including abortion access, voting rights, and criminal law. This conversation was recorded on Thursday, June 10th. You can keep up with the status of the legislation we discussed by joining our email list on our website, aclupa.org, and by following us on the various social media platforms, including Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube, all with the handle ACLUPA. Well, Liz, thank you for joining me for this uh, semi-regular discussion. I think you're on once or twice a year to let folks know what is happening in the legislature. And instead of a recap this time, we're actually talking right in the middle of things happening, which I wanted to do because a lot of our issues, quite a number of our issues are getting a lot of attention. Um, So I thought it was a good time to bring you on and get this episode turned around so folks can know what's happening and take action. And I also want to let our listeners know that usually I have a script for these podcast episodes. um, But if anyone could ever be a fly in the wall in the ACLU of PA's conference room during pre-COVID times, uh, you'd be really entertained by, by the way that we rap with each other. So Liz, I figured you of all people, I could be unscripted and we would just let it fly. Is that okay? Absolutely. No question. Well, and I think, you know, Andy, because you uh, were the legislative director for eight years, um, certainly I think our banter is, um, it's not just uh, regular banter. It's definitely informed by all of the years of experience that you have with the legislature. So it makes it easier and probably less necessary for us to have a hard and fast script. So, yes, hopefully by the end of this, we won't have uh, too many members uh, ticked off at us. Although if they are, depends on depending upon what we said, you know, oh, well, <laughs> hey, there you go. <laughs> Welcome uh, to the inner sanctum. Right, Congo. right, exactly. <laughs> so there are several issues I want to touch on, which we expect to come up this month before June 30th. This month is busy because June 30th is the deadline for the state budget. So it's we're recording this on Thursday, June 10th, and just yesterday there was some debate around abortion rights. That's one of the issues I want to get into. We'll also get into voting rights and some criminal justice stuff. Um, but let's start with abortion rights. So um, the House, the state house, is considering or has considered um, three bills. Uh, why don't you just set the scene by describing what those bills are and where they are? Sure. So I will preface this by saying that I think we saw some traction on these bills after hearing that the United States Supreme Court has decided to hear a really important, so this is just to put it on listeners' radar, um, a really important uh, case at the the U.S. Supreme Court level that could threaten Roe v. Wade. Uh, So there's been a lot of speculation around that, how the court, what the question is that the court may consider and how the court may vote. But all that being said, I think it is energized some of this um, in a way, and really I would have to say sort of off cycle, if you will, like normally 
in June, we're like, as you mentioned, we're talking about the budget. And so things slow down a little bit for us because they're not really running major bills. You usually see that, you know, around primaries or, you know, other sort of times when like those types of bills um, get introduced. But I think um, there's other external factors, I think, that are informing some of the decisions that the legislature is making in terms of when they've decided to call up bills for a vote. Um, and so this past week, um, there were three bills, um, two of which are very sort of directly connected to um, uh, abortion access and one that's a bit tangential-ish. But um, so the, the, the first one um, was House Bill 1500, which would have, um, if enacted, would, um, would, would ban abortion following a fetal diagnosis of Down syndrome. Um, this bill actually was a bit more expansive than what we had seen from last session. It actually makes it um, not the sole reason, um, but it expanded if it was one of the reasons um, that someone uh, had uh, decided to terminate a pregnancy. Um, Which, can so, I just stop you there for a sure. second? Like, yeah. how do you even enforce that? How do you just like, well, they like have, someone's going to fill out a survey or something? Well, to it's, say, it's oh. Actually, so part of what the, the reporting requirements are for clinics is that they have to, you know, they have paperwork that they have to file. And so there was some additional amended language in there around um, identifying some of those reasons. Um, and so this was, they were a bit more specific and say clever than how they've um, proposed this concept in the past where they tightened up some of, I think the loopholes where it was like, okay, like even if they were to have enacted it, to what extent would this be able to be enforced? And I think they tried to take some of that perhaps a bit more seriously. So this was, it's certainly, it's always a threat. And I think it was even more so this session um, because they were a bit more, um, let's say thoughtful. I mean, in many cases- but invasive, some, but really invasive. Oh, incredibly invasive. And really, and much more about the, you know, sort of the state overreach of surveillance and just, you know, reaching into people's most intimate, you know, decisions. So, um, so that bill ran um, on the floor, um, and was that bill also was passed um, by a vote of 120 to 83. Um, we also saw um, the passage of House Bill 118, which would require um, for any woman who so there's there's a lot of the bill was not terribly well drafted. So there's the way that the language around this goes can be a bit uh, a bit wonky. But if you um, it would require the ritual disposition, uh, in other words, burial or cremation of any uh, medical tissue that was fertilized. So from the moment of conception all the way through um, would have it would require that for any woman whose um, uh, whose pregnancy is either um, through extraction or uh, ex through extraction or I think expulsion. This is um, the language in the bill. This is the language in the bill. So um, so yeah. So it. So we're talking about uh, abortion and miscarriages. That's right. Um, or actually, ectopic pregnancies. Uh, in vitro fertilization um, or any embryonic sort of reduction uh, that would happen, that there would be a requirement if that happens in a healthcare in a facility. Um, the facility is then required to provide for the ritual disposition of that medical tissue. Um, and so 
it's um, it, again, very invasive. It's, it's something that is not only, uh, you know, to be clear, that is, that is a process that is currently required at 16 weeks gestation um, for whether it's abortion or miscarriage. Um, but it's also optional. There's nothing right now preventing anyone who wants to provide for, to make arrangements to, for a burial or cremation of any pregnancy um, that from the moment of conception forward, there's nothing that prevents that. So this is not like an enabling legislation. This would require that. And so in some ways, you know, really what it is, um, it's can be extremely expensive. Um, the average cost for burial and cremation um, is a cost that would be borne a by the facility, but then also passed to the, the woman. Um, it, but it's usually around five to seven thousand dollars to do to perform that um, that kind of um, uh, the burial or cremation in Pennsylvania. And so it's a very shaming bill for women in addition to being incredibly invasive and really, I think, serves as just another tactic um, as we refer to them as trap laws that are targeted regulation of abortion providers. And so it would make it would add additional uh, paperwork requirements, money, planning, logistics um, for those clinics. Um, but it would also apply to any other healthcare provider. It could be, um, you know, any, any, uh, like I said, any healthcare provider. So it wouldn't just be in a clinic, it could be in a hospital, it could be in a, um, some other sort of medical facility that would also then now be responsible for the, the paperwork and the, and the, um, the procedures to require the burial or cremation. So that also passed same vote total, 120 to 80. And then the last one was uh, House Bill 1095, which would um, have, you know, this was a sort of a twofer for us. So it would impose uh, mandatory life imprisonment for um, someone who um, is found, who is convicted of third degree murder of a pregnant person. And so effectively, like our concern there in terms of the abortion universe um, is that it would provide yet another avenue for um, uh, a sort of dangerous potential expansion of how we understand legal fetal personhood. In addition to the fact that we always, um, as a absolute rule, oppose any mandatory minimum sentence. And this actually isn't a mandatory minimum, it's a mandatory life sentence. So it doesn't, um, this bill, it's just purely punitive and re retributive. There's no, it's not like, oh, well, we can rehabilitate or it reduces recidivism, doesn't do any of those things. It just makes sure that someone remains locked up for the rest of their lives, that death by incarceration. That's interesting because when I said three bills, there was actually an additional bill I was not thinking, or that you did not mention, which is the legislation exactly. to prohibit abortion effectively at six weeks. You want to explain that one too? That, that, that has not passed yet. That did not, and they didn't, which I sort of find a bit curious. It did not get called up. Um, and that one is really just at, at currently, as long as um, Roe v. Wade and Planned Parenthood versus Casey and the whole women's health still remains um, unless until and unless the uh, Supreme Court changes it is like just flatly unconstitutional. So it would, it would ban um, abortion at roughly around the six week um, marker. And so, um, you know, any time that those have been brought up or attempted to pass in any other state, they've been, they've been blocked from being enacted. They, the, um, constitutionally, 
uh, states cannot prohibit abortion prior to viability. And so um, six weeks is, you know, after one missed period, I mean, at a time when most people may not, most women may not even know that they are pregnant. So um, it's, uh, it's just flatly unconstitutional on its face. So as of today, that's right. As of today, currently, that's right. Um, before we started recording, you were offering some observations of the floor debate, um, which I thought were really powerful. I wanted to give you a chance to speak a little bit about what that floor debate looked like yesterday. Yeah, so, you know, I think, um, you know, for those of us who are, you know, watch the legislature and see some of this, these bills um, repeatedly come up, um, the governor has committed to vetoing these bills. Um, but the problem is they still require, they, uh, there's time that's spent debating them on the floor. Um, and there's, um, you know, even though the bill, even though we currently have a governor who will veto them, it requires that um, people make arguments both for and against the bills. And I've found though that, you know, watching yesterday's debate um, really, particularly on House Bill 118, which was the fetal remains bill, uh, prompted a number of female legislators to come to the podium and tell the most personal, gut-wrenching, um, intimate stories about decisions, you know, um, tragic uh, events that have happened in their lives with, for them and or close relatives. Um, and that were largely, in many cases, decisions that had been made between um, themselves and their partners. And before they made, before they disclosed and told their personal stories on the floor, like they had to call other family members and friends to let them know that they were going to be saying this on the, the floor of the house. And so effectively, like what you have is, um, you know, a, a, an absolute sort of like required like perversity of having to force women to try to explain why and how this legislation that decisions that would be made by the legislators that by their coworkers that they have to come to their place of business you know their workplace and disclose this these sorts of um, intimate details about their lives is I mean, I was struck. I've seen a lot of these floor debates, um, more women, as we elect more women to these positions, we also get more of the input and like they're able to at least share their perspectives. I mean, it's, it's um, incredibly brave of them. Um, and the, their stories are powerful and, and absolutely just gut-wrenching. Um, but the fact that they are in a position, that they have to be put in a position to have to disclose those stories in order to impress upon their colleagues um, that these are that this the impact that it would have had on their own lives is just um, I, it's it's offensive in a way that I can't really explain or describe. I mean, it was um, because it was one after the other, and it was just there is no reason why any of us should know these details about these women's lives and the decisions that they and their their partners and spouses have have made. Um, and the tragedy that has befallen them and the difficulty that they had in making some of the decisions that they either, you know, needed to make, had to make, um, were in. Uh, and so it just, um, yeah, I just was struck by it. And I've seen a lot of these and it was, um, yesterday was even more, I just thought, um, very powerful, but in a way that it is just, um, 
uh, I can't believe that this is sort of where we are, that this is what people have to do in order to have to, to argue a position on a piece of legislation, that this is the kind of, um, the, the, the kind of uh, disclosure that people are, that, that they feel compelled to make. And I'm yeah. grateful for that, you know, that they have made, have said that because it, it does, it puts a very sharp point on things that I think many people might imagine theoretically. And, uh, and this, this just really drove it home, but um, it's, it's unfortunate that, the, that they had to, that it got to that point. Yeah. It's something that I've wrestled with quite a bit, uh, both as a policy advocate slash activist and now in communications you know, this idea of trauma theater that people have to, and that's nothing against, that's nothing toward the people who are disclosing their stories. It's, it's toward the, the listener. And I, you know, I get how the brain works, you know, people, I can ease, it's easier for folks to empathize when they can see how the human side of an issue um, instead of it just being sounding like a wonky policy debate. But I think in this context, it shouldn't even get to that point when you, when you have a bill that just on its face is so obviously cruel. Yes. Um, and presumptive. I mean, yeah. the idea that somehow all of those people know better or know what the right, the right choice would be in that situation, as if just because one legislator would have liked to have made a decision differently. I mean, this was all born out of a also similarly, you know, tragic story of the bill sponsor, his wife, and they lost you know, they, they had a miscarriage and didn't realize that they could have opted for burial or cremation, but to then turn that around, to require that of everyone at every, at any stage is, you know, it is sort of taking the, you know, uh, um, the idea of voluntary choice to do something and just, I mean, converting it into a mandate just has that is not always going to be the right decision. It's not what everybody wants. And so, um, you know, it's, so in any case, yeah, it's, uh, the, the trauma theater is real and absolutely unnecessary and offensive. And, but there was a, you know, really, um, you know, part of the power in their voice too was anger as well. I mean, it's not as if the, these stories that they were sharing, you know, it was very clear that they would prefer not to have had to have done it and that it's infuriating that this is where they also had to, get, you know, so there was some rightful uh, and righteous indignation in their voices as well as, as they were also sharing these very um, personal stories. So, yeah, I mean, we've had a lot of experience with folks sharing personal stories about a whole host of issues. And um, sometimes it's really empowering for folks to do that um, in this situation. I mean, your description of it, I think, sounds, well, it may, who knows what was in the minds of the legislators sharing their stories. Maybe there was a level of empowerment. Um, you're, you're calling it, saying it's infuriating for them. Um, I just wish they didn't have to do it. That's right. Agreed. Um, so you mentioned that Governor Wolf will almost certainly, well, not almost, he will certainly veto these, any of these bills, uh, that, you, that we've talked about. And the ACLU of Pennsylvania is fiercely nonpartisan. Uh, there is shorthand for our nonpartisanship. It's 519, which is our policy about not endorsing candidates. 
Um, but the reality is that in January of 2023, the state government is going to change mm -hmm. um, because there's an election uh, for state office in uh, November of 2022. Uh, so all, all members of the state house, half the members of the state Senate and the governor's office will all be up on that ballot. Um, and Governor Wolf uh, will be term limited. He'll be, he'll be leaving. So are we looking at uh, what a return to all Republican control would be like in these bills? I mean, look, I think um, I, I always like to underscore for people, whether it's friends, ACLU, Pennsylvania members, supporters, et cetera, but anyone that is willing to listen that most of the issues, certainly that we work on, um, and that I think is of concern to people who are aligned with the ACLU and, and our priority areas, all of those decisions are made almost universally at the state level. So whether that has to do with criminal legal reform, whether it has to do with abortion, reproductive access, um, whether it has to do with voting rights, all of those decisions are made at the state level. And uh, I think now that we are thankfully, hopefully um, salvaged a bit from having to have our eyes trained on some of the horrors happening at the federal level, um, that now we, I think all of that energy, all of the things that everyone has learned um, through the course of the last, through the last presidency um, and sort of getting um, up to speed on everyone taking a crash course in civics, um, hopefully using that, that knowledge and information to be paying much more attention um, to what's happening both at the state level and even the local level. I mean, we talk about DAs, um, you know, magisterial district judge races, you know, judicial races, et cetera. So all of those things are important. But yeah, I mean, I think, you know, looking at what might happen uh, with a what they refer to sort of in the business as a trifecta, which would be the uh, both chambers of the legislature and the governor being held by the same party, um, you know, is is quite frankly terrifying and um, could spell just I think catastrophic <laughs> would have catastrophic consequences. Um, with no check and balance in those. And I think, um, yeah, maybe we'll talk about it in a little bit, but the concerns around constitutional amendments being used as legislative tactics, I think is something for us to keep our eyes open for as well. Yeah, we're not telling people how to vote. What we are saying is civil liberties issues will be part of the 2022 campaign. And folks should be aware of that fact. Uh, in a way, the legislative majority right now is signaling what their platform is for 2022. That's right. In, in my mind. That's right. I mean, and that's why I feel like, you know, we, um, you know, sort of the disclosure of some of our conversations internally, which is, um, you know, how much do we work up? How much do we worry our members and supporters around, say, bills that we know are going to be vetoed? like the abortion bills. We know that that's the case, but the, but it's still important that people are paying attention to what the bills contain, what the arguments are, um, and what the vote totals are, because, um, you know, those are, it's, 
you know, it's kind of like when somebody tells you who they are, believe them kind of deal, like, even though, so in some ways it's not the same kind of, um, perhaps say like legislative emergency, knowing that these would be vetoed, but I think it is important to remind people that this is what is on the docket. And these are bills that they have repeatedly introduced. I mean, it's not like, oh, they're just like joking around or maybe it's just like one major news cycle that had this terrible incident that happened. So they're going to file a bill that's, you know, really awful or punitive or something. I mean, it is a routine. So paying attention, even though we can, we can rest a bit more easily knowing that it would, that the governor will veto it does not dismiss or erase the fact that this is what we want to look at what the full plate of the legislative agenda would look like, um, if there was a way to get it enacted, the, these types of bills would absolutely be on it. Mandatory minimums, you know, abortion uh, yeah. restrictions, um, voting access restrictions and the like. So, yeah. So I was just looking at our spring newsletter the other day, uh, or the cover of it, which has a story about voting rights. And I realized that the lead of that uh, that piece is actually kind of outdated because in the lead, I we, we talked about how usually people care about voting rights right around the time of a presidential election and then people stop paying attention and voting rights is forgotten. But I don't think that's happening now. Uh, voting rights is very much on people's minds. Um, and it's it's a little challenging at this point, even sitting here on June 10th, um, with 20 days left until sub effectively till summer recess, uh, it's hard to get a handle on what is going to happen with voting rights, but I wanted to at least give you a chance to kind of, uh, lay out what you think is ahead, um, in these next three weeks, um, and where ACLU stands. So there was, a, there was a series of hearings in the state house, um, around election reform issues. Um, so just bring us up to speed on from where you sit um, as legislative director for ACLUPA of what has been happening in the legislature and what you anticipate could be ahead. So I think that is a, a live question as we are sitting here. Um, so the, in the state, uh, in the state government committee in the house, the, that committee held, I think it was 11 hearings on election related matters. Um, and I will say that the they did a pretty good job of inviting a good cross section of people to testify at each one. They had very sort of specific issues that um, the committee was um, focused on and explored, trying to sort of dig into not only sort of obsessively focusing on the 2020 election, but um, some broader issues. And I think really, you know, some of the glitches or things that needed to be ironed out after the enactment uh, of Act 77, which was the, the bill that sort of overhauled and allowed us, um, fortunately, to have um, uh, no excuse absentee voting. So um, our vote by mail system. So, um, so some of it was good. There was just, there was a lot, there was a lot in there. And, um, but to me that also, and I think accurately has signaled that the legislature is interested in trying to run a bill or a series of bills that address some of the things that came up as a result. And people can certainly look, there's a, um, the committee sort of has a, it was Seth Grove, who was the Republican chair of that committee sort of issued a report of his findings. So I think, you know, as we're moving 
moving along, we can expect to see a renewal of uh, voter ID, calls for voter ID, um, uh, signature verification, um, moving the deadline back. So that, yeah, signature verification means what exactly? So signature verification is really a very um, controversial uh, to ensure that the person who signs their, whether it's the poll book or like their, their, um, their ballot, if you mail it in, that it matches the signature that is on file. Um, the problem is, is that like even some states, I don't know that any state has done this well, like you have to kind of get in. There's a lot of different reasons why a signature is, can be off. It could be that my signature has probably changed 50 million times over the course of my life. Um, but you have people who are older who may not be able to sign their names, like they have arthritis or mobility issues. or um, um, So there's a lot of reasons that it can look differently. And if you're not trained, like some states, I think, have tried to get in like F, the special FBI, like people to train the, the, the election workers to sort of detect. I mean, it's it's way it's way too subjective and not a very good way at all to sort of confirm uh, the to match a signature requires like actual training and even still is not a very good science. Yeah. Um, so um, but looking at some restrictions, but also trying to um, I would imagine that there would be also proposals to um, to meet some of the requests that we've had with some of our allies. So that could be everything from. Um, allowing uh, ballot curing. So like if um, someone sends their ballot in to sort of fix if they're say missing a signature, this is before anything gets opened, um, but counties could um, give someone the heads up that they need to, they didn't sign the back of it, um, come in and sign it or else, you know, it won't count. Um, allowing for pre-canvassing, that was the, you know, the amount of time that it just takes to prepare the ballots to be scanned. So like when the re one of the reasons why we waited as long as we did for some of the returns um, is because it just takes a long time to open up, open each envelope, flatten the, like, the ballot out, get it like set to be scanned. Um, so I think, you know, and county election directors have wanted that. It just makes life easier for them. So, I mean, I think there's going to be, we will probably see this month, at least the introduction of um, some proposed pieces of legislation that are going to introduce um, probably a whole series of different uh, proposals and then see what happens, what kind of negotiations happen with the governor, what happens with the Democrats. Um, so June is definitely not a, um, going to be probably a light, a light month or only and or exclusively dedicated to the budget. It's hard to know where to go from there. Cause that was a lot. And I'm glad you, uh, offered it all. Um, I guess, you know, I would underline for ACLUPA how and and some of our partners too how we make decisions about where we stand on these various voting rights issues so can you just kind of um give folks the formula for like how we decide if we support or oppose something yeah so that's going to be i mean look i think voter id would be like the absolute like would be a poison pill for anything even if it included items that um some things that we might have advocated for so uh, voter ID, I think signature verification would also be close to a poison pill. Um, you know, so I think what's going to make this difficult, though, Andy, and you can, you know, this is something that's not going to be news to you, is that if the proposal includes both good and bad elements, 
um, I think the and is intentionally and, and any indication that I've seen in terms of public comments that Seth Grove and even perhaps Dave Ar Senator Argyle have made, um, who's the chair of the Senate State Government Committee, um, is that they're I think they are interested in getting something at least that won't get vetoed out of hand, like right out of the gate. And so which is going to mean that there's going to it's going to be harder for us to be able to say absolutely yes or no, depending on what is in the bills. Every bill really is a negotiation. Right. So um, I think there, we're going to see a mix of those. But I think no matter what, if there's voter ID requirements in there, I think that would that um, I wouldn't be surprised if we see it in the original pitch. I think if that stays in there, it's an almost guarantee that certainly we would of course, opposed to, even if it included some good things. Um, but we would also like to see things like pre-canvassing and curing, ballot curing in advance. Um, we would want to see electronic poll books um, that actually add to um, security um, and um, actually could result, get, get some good federal funding. Um, and um, yeah, so, you know, there's, there's a whole laundry list of, of smaller things that we would like, but I think in terms of the no vote, voter ID and probably signature verification would be very problematic for us, no matter what else is in there. And I should note that we have, we collectively, not just ACLUPA, but a whole coalition of folks have twice previously defeated voter ID. The, the legislature passed it in 2006, Governor Rendell vetoed it. Um, and then in 2011 or 2012, um, the legislature passed it, Governor Corbett signed it, and then uh, we defeated it in court, uh, us and Advancement Project and Arnold and Porter um, with an amazing group of clients uh, led by the late Viviette Applewhite, um, just did an incredible job showing the impact of voter ID because in that situation, well, first of all, one of my favorite parts of that whole case was the fact that the Commonwealth had to sign a piece of paper, sign an affidavit saying, we have no evidence of in-person uh, voter impersonation, right. which was just great. <laughs> um, Can't find it anywhere, but we're going to legislate it out of, yeah. Right, right, exactly. Um, and we also showed in that case how the legislature's, the law was so restrictive um, on the types of ID that were acceptable that you had hundreds of thousands of people who would not be able to meet the requirements. I mean, we had witnesses in that case who had six different kinds of ID cards, but none of them fit what was in the law. Right. Um, not that that would be a just, you know, again, like, like you said, we have to see what a voter, voter ID is almost certainly a, a, a no go, no matter what it looks like. Right. Um, but in that specific case, um, we had a lot of people who just could not meet the strict requirements of, of the law. I mean, and look, and I think that, you know, in addition to it affecting, um, you know, that it will restrict the ability of some voters that they may not want to be voting. Like, you know, a lot of these things can backfire. I mean, can affect the voters that they, you know, assuming if we want to take the cynical, also perhaps somewhat realistic <laughs> um, <laughs> assumption that, um, that this is it, that some of these provisions are being done in a way to target certain types of voters, uh, certain demographics of voters, certain like geographically positioned, you know. Um, but I think, um, you know, 
doing that too much. Also, there is no guarantee that that does not cut into the voters that they may want to be turning out, um, not to mention how it also energizes other people um, if they feel like their access to the ballot is being threatened, um, certainly has um, the in, unintended, I think, on you know, from the other perspective, the unintended consequence of driving out more votes of the people that they may not want if, um, you know, they, they sort of turn up the, the partisanship and um, sort of attack on voting access. So, um, yeah, it's but, a bizarre strategy. I feel like maybe the last time you were on the podcast, we talked about this because you have a background in, in campaigns as well. And <clears throat> the strategy of um, diminishing vote by mail is just bizarre. Oh, like you, look, the Republicans have always, I mean, have almost always uniformly outperformed um, Democrats as a party, a sort of organizing element in terms of being able to. They have, they have always traditionally had very strong um, turnout and very strong, like sort of organizing around vote by mail. Um, and at the time, you know, it was just absentees, but you know, completely just ran the table on that. And so, like, to start cutting into some of those things, it's like you know, careful what you wish for, because some of those restrictions may come back to, you know, to bite you and the, the, the base that you may be looking to turn out. I mean, and so, um, you know, and that's why it's just, these are, it's, you know, these sorts of restrictions are not just bad because they often are intended to be targeted at certain vote. It's just bad because it like, there is, you can't in any neat way prevent it from affecting all voters of yeah. any party, you know, whether it's, um, Democrat, Republican, Green, Independent, what have you, it's going to affect, it has the potential to affect everyone and at different, you know, if they can't get to the polls, I mean, it's just, it, it, it doesn't make any sense. And I think the more they are sort of fetishizing this and sort of like trying to circle the wagons, it may, may end up, I mean, this isn't, I wouldn't guarantee it. It's not like, oh, we shouldn't worry about it because it'll backfire on them. But I just think, um, uh, those are some of the things they're not looking around the corner to see how that might depress their own, um, some of their own votes as well. And you have uh, quite the background on voting rights. You've worked for us for four years. Um, you worked for Common Cause for a few years, and you've also worked in county government. So you've seen uh, this from a whole host of angles. The signature verification issue, I think, is interesting. And you've, you've pointed out the, the main reason why it's so problematic is because it's so subjective. Um, but in addition, it's also worth noting that the counties have quite the level of checks on a person's, uh, eligibility for, for voting. Yes. I mean, um, so yeah, what are you referring to? See, now we're, this is the unscripted moment. Okay. Yeah. Like, oh, that, Andy? <laughs> uh, <laughs> we may end up editing this part, but, um, no, I was referring to, you know, how they, they check it. They check a person's um, eligibility across other government databases. Um, they send you mail. So if the mail bounces, um, they know you don't live there. There's a list of things that the counties go through to make sure a person actually is eligible. So like, right. I voted for mail the last two elections, both the primary that just passed and actually three, I guess. Hmm. I, think, I think I voted by mail the primary in 2020 as well. Um, and, uh, you know, the county knows that I am the person I say that I am, that I live at the address where I say I live just because of the level of checks that they do. So signature verification almost seems like a level of bureaucracy that's not even necessary at the risk of potentially disenfranchising people. That's right. And I mean, I think that, you know, there's been some conversation, you know, in terms of 
um, trying to parse the way that we look at what some of these restrictions might do. I mean, something like the signature verification, right? It's not just say voter suppression, it's vote like nullification. And so, um, you know, there, there are different kinds of intrusions that some of these proposals uh, would introduce into the process where some of them are meant to make it more difficult to access the ballot. And then some would make it easier to nullify cast ballots, right? So I think sometimes trying to look at it from a, a couple of different lenses and not that I'm quarreling necessarily with the concept of like voter suppression, but I think that being clear about what the action really is, um, because someone had already, they received their ballot, you know, they requested it, they received the ballot, they voted it, they, you know, they returned it. And then what happened? So, I mean, there are levels and we have not seen some of this in our state um, as of yet, but, you know, in terms of, um, you know, some of the ability to, um, you know, change uh, who gets, I think in some of the other states, you know, they've had, um, they've had different provisions that would allow, um, you know, legislators to override what's happening with a county uh, election official, like decisions that they've made. And so I think, again, looking at where, like, at what stage of uh, the vote the state is intervening in or where that proposal comes in, I think has um, very different types of effects because one could, you know, make it more difficult to either register or cast your ballot. Others have a significant impact after people have already cast their ballot. So effectively nullifying it as opposed to just, say, just suppressing it. Yeah. Um, the third issue I wanted to ask you about, you've already alluded to it, is criminal legal reform. Um, we just released the second version of our report, More Law, Less Justice, um, which is an analysis of the legislature's work on criminal justice and on the um, the criminal code, but not just the criminal code, but that, that part in particular. Um, so what did the report find if it found what you have to deal with on a daily basis? Oh, it's just, Andy, it just is relentless. Um, you know, so we've been discussing this whole time, like lots of incredibly important bills and what might be happening. But if there's anything that eats up a vast majority of our time, it is just the relentless introduction and consideration of bills that um, expand, that make uh, expand our crimes code, um, whether it's creating new offenses, whether it's increasing penalties, um, whether it's uh, adding consecutive sentences, um, requiring those, whether it's expanding definitions of certain offenses. Um, so our last report, so this was something that we started um, to, re it was, we released it in October of 2019 that looked at the 2017, 2018 legislative session. And now this one looks at last session. So Pennsylvania has two year legislative sessions. So this most recent report covers the activities of the legislature from 2019 um, through 2020. So th that two year period. Um, and the, over that period, the legislature at a minimum, um, introduced at least 280 bills that would, um, have either, um, we refer to them as carceral bills, but they are bills that would either put more people in prison or keep them in prison for longer. Um, 
And of those, 14 of those bills were enacted. And of those, um, there were, of those arose 15 new criminal offenses out of just the 14 bills, uh, 26 new criminal penalties, I believe 10 expanded definitions of offenses. And each one of those bills passed with 100% bipartisan support. I think five of the votes to be, if I'm not mistaken, of the 14 were unanimous votes. Um, and so, you know, this is not a uh, Democrat or, I mean, it, there is, um, it is not a, bi it is not a partisan guarantee that uh, all Democrats, for example, will vote against these bills. Um, that is not the case at all, or that they won't be introduced by Democrats either. So um, this is a problem that we see on both sides of the aisle. And it, it's only, it is just, and even this session, it's just an ongoing, it's an onslaught. And I don't, we are, have been trying to find any way possible to communicate this to our members and to try to stop this onward march of um, this like I said, relentless expansion of the crimes code that has really in our estimation, three main problems. Um, so I'll just keep barreling through any, feel free to interrupt if you want but I'm on this role, but um, you know, where I like to think about it in terms of police prosecutors and prisons. So what the bills do is, um, you know, anytime we add new offenses um, to the crimes code, you give uh, more ammunition to police to, uh, selectively enforce those offenses uh, and perhaps discriminatorily enforce those um, offenses. Um, you give prosecutors more power to, um, to use those offenses to stack charges for the same offense. So what they effectively will do is say, we have multiple um, uh, crimes on the books. When they expand these uh, the crimes code, they often will make offenses that are duplicative, which means you could engage in one course of conduct and you could be charged with five different offenses, each of which carry their own um, you know, requirements for fines and certainly for imprisonment. Um, and the prosecutors use that as a way to leverage and arm twist people into plea deals um, so that we have still really no real meaningful right, Sixth Amendment right to trial since upwards of 90 some odd percent of all cases are settled by plea deal and not through trial. So there's no such, there's no law and order situations happening here with like trials happening all over the place. Um, and then, um, and then at the, at the end of it, it's um, what happens in our, our prisons um, and the number of people that are kept there and the length of time that they have to spend all of which of course, from, you know, beginning to end all have a disproportionate effect on um, communities of color. And so you have from, you know, policing, through um, the prosecution, through incarceration, um, it's all uh, falls disproportionately and just um, and rather obscenely on the um, on black and brown communities. So that's why we just try. We are just trying to interrupt <laughs> the stream of this legislation. It just, like I said, it just keeps happening, and there's no reason. I I, I don't see it slowing. In fact, I, I feel like there's been a lot more even this at the beginning of the session than we've seen even in other session years. It's just getting increasingly worse. And I will say this, that like, you know, most people will be like, well, you know, you just add to the, like, we need to, um, 
you know, we need to address this particular kind of offense. We need to make sure that people know that this is, you know, unacceptable behavior. I mean, but first of all, our crimes code really contains all of the laws that we currently need to punish almost any kind of criminal behavior. Um, They were written and established well, um, broadly enough that it could capture, and that was, that's the purpose of sort of writing some of them broadly in order to capture, um, to be able to deal with some of the nuance. But the problem is, is that um, the legislature not only creates new offenses within the crimes, which is Title 18, a bit in the wonky weeds here, but they also create offenses that are in other parts of our statute, which means there is no one single place that you can look on the internet anywhere to find all of the things that are actual criminal offenses in Pennsylvania. And so what happens is, is that once you start blowing this stuff up and you have offenses all over the place, you you undermine the ability for your crimes code, for any of these offenses to have a deterrent effect. If I don't know where, what is actually criminal in Pennsylvania, I can't even find it, of one singular list, then all you're doing is just ensuring that, you know, more people are picked up for, um, you know, random different offenses and are prosecuted more harshly and spend more time in prison. It has no, it sort of undermines the entire like thinking around like why a legislator might want to pass one of these, you know, a bill like this. You just keep adding to it and you're just bloating it to the point where it loses any deterrent effect it could have ever had. Yep. Yeah, and shout out to Haley Pritchard, uh, one of yes. our colleagues who did the research and, and uh, the bulk of the writing uh, on this report. Um, folks can check it out, aclupa.org slash MLLJ2. That's mm-hmm. uh, more law, less justice. Um, but yeah, I mean, your description um, is really fitting uh, about the way this happens and the fact that legislators are constantly rolling out new offenses. And I also think it's really important just to to reiterate and underscore the fact that in 1972, there were less than 300 criminal offenses. I think it was 282. Mm-hmm. Even as recently as 2010, there were just over 600. And now it's over 1,500. That's right. So the, you know, going from almost 300 to just over 600 is one thing in a 38-year period. But now in an 11-year period, we've gone from just over 600 to over 1,500 criminal offenses, which is just absolutely bonkers. And to your point, you know, one act could be charged with three or four or five different offenses. Um, And and what I wanted to go to from there is the fact that most of the behavior that was criminal in 1972, or most of the behavior that they're making criminal let me rephrase this the right way. Most behavior was already criminal in 1972. That's right. And there is very little behavior that's criminal today that wasn't in 1972. That's exactly correct. That it could. So for example, there's a bill that I was just looking at that would expand um, that's ostensibly been written to address cyber stalking. Well, there's a, there are um, our current harassment statute, which is technically how, stalking is defined. So already covers one of the mechanisms that is used to charge stalking behavior um, that sort of repeated harassment is done through communication and sort of lists. Well, that's, you don't need to say it's the internet and social media and, you know, friend requesting, which is what the bill would do that then creates sort of a new offense that could be charged on top of or further 
penalized. I mean, one of the things too, that even the 1500, I don't know how we would be able to, this would probably take a Herculean effort to try to parse the data with this, but you know, the 1500 offenses, like that expansion does not capture just the sheer also number of the individual expansions of the penalties. So for example, like one of the things that the legislature loves to do, they love to make things that were misdemeanors, which is already a severe penalty. And we, people think of misdemeanor as some like throwaway, like I think a first degree misdemeanor carries with that a maximum sentence of seven years. And I mean, wow. it, these are not small, you know, maybe we should call it something else. It doesn't sound like it's little, right? But um, they love to enhance a penalty from a misdemeanor to a felony to make sure that people understand that we take this really seriously and it's really bad. The problem though, in addition to the additional fines and the, the time incarcerated is that felony convictions in particular carry severe collateral consequences. So once someone is finished, they've done their time, they are then, um, they are returned to society only to face an entire other raft of civil punishments that happen after they get out. So it makes it, they can't get access to public housing. Um, it interferes with their ability to, um, to get student loans. Um, they are barred from getting any, uh, lots of different types of jobs if you have a felony conviction on your record. Um, and then even some of your participating in one's civic duty. I mean, we talk about the criminal legal system. Well, good luck getting a jury of your peers to some extent if, because you can't serve on a jury if you have a criminal conviction, right? So you have this entire, so every time they do that, they are guaranteeing like all of this expansion actually makes us more unsafe because this constant expansion of incarcerating more people, keeping them there for longer, and then punishing them more by enhancing these penalties, jacking everything up to a you know felony offense means that you're now relegated because they haven't fixed any of the restrictions that happen with felony convictions once you are out. And some of those are at the federal level. They're not even something perhaps that the state can do you are guaranteeing that people are gonna make, it's gonna make it even more impossible for people to reintegrate into their communities. And then we wonder why some of these issues are cyclical and problematic and all they keep doing is piling on. It just makes it worse. And they just are not stopping. It's so exhausting. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And the way this often plays out is that some there's an incident in somebody's district and the legislator feels like I got to address this um, even though the behavior is probably already a crime, um, you know, let the DA do their job and prosecute it. Um, instead, legislators have this need to be part of solving what they see as a problem. Um, and they do, we end up with just more and more criminal offenses and sub offenses. No, I mean, it's really, um, you know, and those, you know, I feel like, um, you know, they, those bills are often, driven by terrible, awful, tragic stories. Um, and so we like to, but we like to try to remind people that, you know, those tragic cases make for really bad law um, because in order, and I have to say like, I think some of the legislators like terrifyingly are getting better at actually um, being more precise about how to ensure that the tragic case that they has motivated them to run this bill uh, is actually uh, would prevent that very specific scenario from ever happening again, like the way that it did. And so by that, I mean, in order to prevent the most extreme, terrible, tragic case from happening, like the one that might motivate these bills, 
you have to elevate, you have to ratchet up the penalties, the restrictions, the sort of surveillance, the um, procedural maneuvers to such an extent that would then apply to everybody across the board, that it becomes so incredibly, insanely punitive that you just in order to respond to the one outlier case. And often there are cases that were not had, didn't have anything to do with the laws on the books. It was either a judge made a bad call. Um, the DA gave somebody probation as opposed to, you know, and so there were decisions that didn't have anything to do with the, the severity of the crime or how it would be punished. But now it's like, well, in this instance, then it would have to be this. And then you'd have like escalating everything up to a level that would then capture that one, that one instance, which is an absolutely ghoulish, terrifying way of trying to legislate. Um, and in, uh, imagining that you could, you know, force the entire criminal legal system into like, to, to contort around one awful case in order to prevent it is just, um, it's excessive and absolutely unnecessary and um, will only result in, I think, you know, certainly more injustices being done and um, uh, decreasing really the, you know, our public safety and draining the state of any valuable resource. I mean, our, the Department of Corrections budget is probably going to top three billion. It's B, billion with a B, annually, largely because not just the number of people that we have incarcerated, how long we keep them in there. I mean, we have the most after, I think only Florida beats us in the number of people that we have that are serving life without parole sentences, that they are sentenced to die, they're sentenced to death in prison. Yeah. And those costs are astronomical. And somehow we think that this is just a great way, great way to run our, our society. And it doesn't even get into what the counties are spending on their county oh. jails. Right. Um, where a majority of people are, are pre-trial, either on cash bail or on probation detainers. Just, um, we have a lot going on, Andy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and it's like, so we'll just tell our people, like, look, it's one of those things where we, like, we have lots of recommendations in the More Law, Less Justice report. But the one thing, just, we just are asking, just stop. We would love to reform things and to repeal certain things. But if you, they would just put their pens down, just stop running the bills. Just put a just a moratorium, please, on yeah. these kinds of bills. Then maybe we could get to the reforming piece. But it's like every session we tick by, it just makes the like any reform efforts that much more difficult because they're just the pace at which they are expanding it does not even meet even those the incremental like reforms that we are able to sort of eke out um, pale in comparison to the avalanche of bills that they are running. So yeah. So after all this talk about legislators, there is a resource where folks can check out uh, what their legislators are doing. So you want to describe that? Sure. So um, if you, maybe you could put, I don't know if you have show notes or something that we can sort of post about Andy, but um, so we have a, um, a legislator scorecard that we rolled out at the end of last session. Um, but we are with new bills this session that are um, as they're getting votes. And as we weigh in on positions, this uh, scorecard will continue to consistently update over the course of the session. So if you look at, if it's a, if you click on a legislator that is new this session, they're not going to have a previous, you won't be able to see their previous score. But if you click on them, um, you can see how they voted on, but we have all of the, the bills that we both, you know, support and oppose. Um, it's connected to our bill memos. 
Um, but you can also, you can see their current vote totals and you can also click on their 2019, 2020 session score as well. So, and like, you'll see their lifetime score, but like, just so that people know, um, so you can see how they're, they've been voting on bills this session, um, but just be aware. And I did sort of add like a little note at the top of the scorecard to, you know, note that um, the scores will change as the session progresses and as more votes are taken. So um, there'll probably be a, um, there are fewer Senate, there's always fewer Senate votes. There's lots more House votes, but um, we sort of figure all that into our, our calculations. But so if you want to check out and see how, how your rep or Senator is doing, definitely check out our scorecard. It's very pretty. <laughs> pretty pretty is important yeah yeah so that's exactly right it's it's a good it looks good but it has you know some really you know really not great stuff in there unfortunately sometimes <laughs> right, right. Good modes. all right liz thank you so much this is super informative good luck surviving june i think that's the wish for every lobbyist and staffer just like hang in there hang july in there. july is coming i know we've got two months off maybe with a brief respite so but thank you annie i appreciate it all right thanks liz you got it. That's Elizabeth Randall, ACLUPA's legislative director, who works in the Capitol so the rest of the staff doesn't have to. Shout out to Liz and our colleague Marianne Stein, ACLUPA's legislative associate, both of whom are working hard as the legislature nears summer recess. We mentioned both the More Law, Less Justice report and the legislative scorecard. There are links to both of those in the show notes. That brings episode 62 to a close. The audio editor of Speaking Freely is Freddie Foulet, and our video editor is Cambria Lee. Our music is from bensound.com. The executive director of the ACLU of Pennsylvania is Reggie Schuford. I'm Andy Hoover. Until next time, be healthy and